All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to invite Greg to come and to minister here. And I uh, want you to give him a good welcome, a good impact. Hello. How do you do? Come on. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here. Hang on. What was that? I Now, this is not Wilton Hills. This is Impact Church. I send you greetings from your rather crazy neighbor down to the south of you, up from America. It's refreshing to be here. Uh, you know, there's a, a distinct aroma when you're around kingdom people. And it's a very different kind of aroma than when you're around religious people. I, I frequent both settings. And, and you can tell pretty quickly whether this is a, a religious thing or a kingdom thing. When people are into religion, there's a certain tightness. Um, I don't know, there's unwritten rules. There's, there's a lack of comfort, or it, you just can't let your guard down. You know, there's always, you gotta tiptoe around things. But when you're in the kingdom, the aroma is the aroma of reality. All there is is reality. People are just real. And, and we're all real, recovering sinners who found a real Savior and are experiencing real transformation and salvation. And I love it. And I was here about two minutes, and I smelled that aroma. And I, it, it's, that makes us family. Uh, the same kind of vision of the kingdom, knowing what, who Jesus is and, and who God is and what this whole thing's about. And it's not just about getting a fire insurance policy when you die. Jesus is not just the administrator of post-mortem affairs. Uh, he's, he's Lord now. And, and we're, the eternal life begins now, as Brexy pointed out. And uh, the transformation is now. I have just, so I, I, I really am uh, so glad that I've been invited to, to share in this, in this conference that we've had. It's just been really, really refreshing. Carl and Cheryl, you guys are just great. Just real people. Just, you know, it, it's, there's no, no, no pretense. There's no pretense. No pretense. So praise God for that. Uh, and do you like my socks? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you like my socks? Yeah. <laughs> there. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, sometimes people ask, I, I, I more often than not uh, preach in, in uh, uh, socks. And, and some people have thought, like, was well, that because you consider the, the ground that you preach on the holy ground? And it's like, no, I, I just... It is holy. It's all holy. The whole earth belongs to the Lord. I just get hot easy. And uh, uh, shoes make me hot. And when it's like that, like, it, it makes all the difference in the world where I have shoes. And I don't like shoes. I, 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 I guess you need them in the wintertime, but I'd rather be barefoot. But anyways, so my church, some people, they, they're saying, look, if you're going to preach in socks, don't always have either black or white. You know, we have to look at that. So People have been sending me socks. <laughs> okay. I, I, get, I get a new pair once a week or so. And uh, yeah, so my, my sock wardrobe has, has been uh, taken care of. There you go. So that explains that. I want to share a, a passage of scripture here. Um, this happens once in a while. I, you may have had this experience where, you know, you, you read a passage a uh, hundred times, but the hundred and first time, all of a sudden it catches on fire. That happened to you? It's like, all, you see stuff you didn't see before. And, it, 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 I, and I have no idea why it happens on the 101st time instead of the 100th time or the 84th time or whatever, but it happens. And it's like, how have I read that verse 
all these years and never noticed that. So I'm going to uh, unpack this passage, 2 Corinthians 5. Hello, hello? Okay. Uh, and and uh, share kind of some of the stuff I see going on here. Uh, the title of this is Behold a New Creation. For reasons that will become clear shortly. I want to read the whole passage. It's, it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 13 all the way through 21. And then I'm going to come back to it and read it again in three parts and draw out a lesson after each one. But, but let this word just kind of saturate. And this is how you want to read the word like this. Read it as though you're hearing it for the first time. Uh, and, 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 and be open to whatever it says to you, okay? So Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, if we're crazy, in other words, it is for God. But if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ urges us on. Because we're convinced that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Please turn off your cell phones at the present time. Uh, from now on, therefore, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, uh, just... Pour out your spirit, uh, infuse my words with your authority so that, that it can accomplish things that human words normally can't accomplish. Uh, use, infuse these words, impregnate these words with your authority, with your love, and with your power to tear down strongholds, to blow away lies, to open eyes, to see truth, and to accept it into the depths of our being in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Okay, that's the first three through. Let's now uh, look at, uh, go back to the beginning. And we'll uh, look at verses 13 through 15. For if we're beside ourselves, if we're crazy, it's for God. But if we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us. Senecho. Everyone say senecho. It's an important word. I'll come back to it in a little bit. Senecho. It urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What does that mean? And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. So the question here is, is Paul crazy? And some people thought he was because he had a cushy life going before Jesus got a hold of him. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a muckety-muck. He was a very learned man, intelligent man, respected man. Uh, he had a good life going. Then Jesus literally knocks him off his high horse. 
and um, he becomes a church planner. And uh, church planning is tough, especially when you're doing it with a, a, very, a brand new faith and no one knows anything about it. And so Paul is on these journeys, he's laboring, uh, he gets shipwrecked, he gets thrown in the prison, he, gets, he almost gets killed in a riot. Uh, why would anyone do that? Why would you trade in your cushy life for this hard life that you're living here and he's eventually going to be executed? And Paul gives the answer here. He said, um, we, are, we have a senecho. Uh, we are senechoed by the love of Christ. The love of Christ urges us. Now that word, senecho, urges isn't, doesn't quite capture it. Um, compels is a little better. Some translations have controls. We're, 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 we're controlled by the love of Christ. It, it, uh, sometimes it's translated to be captivated, to be gripped by something. Uh, so, sometimes it, it has a connotation of being imprisoned. But here it's not imprisoned in a bad sense. You're, you've been taken captive. And so he can't help himself. He's compelled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ for him and his love for Christ. He has a seneco in the core of his being. And um, that tells you that he had a compelling, he was compelled by the love of Christ because he had a compelling understanding of who God was, a compelling mental picture of God. He had an understanding that God is the one who became a human being and that one died for all and therefore all have died. This is this compelling picture of God. He had an understanding of God. He says it later on in this passage that he who knew no sin became sin for us. A God who is so loving, so incomprehensibly, unfathomably, beautifully loving that God would become a human being and then beyond that would actually not only just enter into solidarity with our humanity, but enter into solidarity with our sin. Whatever that means, he, he bore our sin. He got on the side. This microphone seems to have a little fickleness to it. I rebuke this. Check. All right. Much better. Um, so here's the thing, and I shared a little bit of this at the conference. God became a human being, which is already crossing an infinite distance for a race of people who just want nothing to do with him. We were lost. We were dead in sin. We were, we were without hope. But he becomes a human being in solidarity with us. And then on the cross... He gets on the inside of every sin in all history, the sin of humanity, and he bears it himself uh, and suffers the, the, the consequences of that, the, the curse of that. Sin is inherently uh, about pushing God away, and so where there is sin, there's distance from God and estrangement from God. So Jesus enters into that, and he experiences the estrangement that comes with sin. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that, that uh, uh, he became a curse. He became a curse. He entered into our God-forsakenness, and that's why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, God hadn't forsaken him. This was the plan from the start. But as he's, as he's on the inside, experiencing on the inside human sin and the estrangement of human sin, he's feeling that forsakenness. He's feeling that, uh, that distance from God. So the all-holy God, in some sense, became sin, which means that he became his opposite, his antithesis. And the perfectly united triune God experienced separation. Again, experiencing his antithesis. And what that shows us is that in Jesus Christ, God went as far 
as is possible. He could not, in all eternity, go farther than he went. You can't get further than the all-holy God becoming sin and the perfectly united God experiencing estrangement. And, and see, this is why the cross is the quintessential, supreme, definitive revelation of God's true character. Because on the cross, this is why Jesus says in John 12 that, that, that when I'm lifted up, I will glorify the Father. The hour for me to glorify the Father has come. Now, he's always glorifying the Father. It's always true that when you see him, you see the Father. You've seen the character of the Father. But on the cross, that character gets perfectly displayed, supremely displayed. Um, because the infinite distance that God crossed, or the unsurpassable distance that God crossed for a race of people who wanted nothing to do with him, that reveals the infinite unsurpassable perfection of the love that God is. You following this? That's the love that God is. So when you look at the cross, you're seeing the, the full quality of God's love. God is, in his being, this other-oriented, self-sacrificial, loving God. Uh, he's, he's, his love is unsurpassable. You, you, can't, you can't put a limit on it. And that's revealed in the fact that he went as far as possible for you and for me when we did not deserve it. That's... Paul understands that that's who God is. That's why John sums up Jesus' ministry by saying, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And then he defines love by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So do the math. God is love. Love looks like the cross. God is cross-like love. God is self-sacrificial love. His very being. Love isn't just the noun that, or the verb that God does. Love is the noun that God is. His very being is this. His very being is other-oriented, self-sacrificial love. And see, Paul got a vision of that. Paul got that understanding. And when that understanding really gets in the core of your being, and you begin to maybe experience some of that unsurpassable love, and you begin to see how who God is changes who you are, well, that's compelling. That might, make, that might get you to do some pretty crazy things. Uh, that, 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 that might rock your world. In fact, it will rock your world. It changes everything. So Paul has this, this understanding, this beautiful picture of God who's revealed in Jesus Christ and especially on the cross. And that compels him to act crazy. Because when you're in love, you sometimes act crazy. I bet you've done a few crazy things in love. love. Love will get you to do crazy things. No way. He did the dishes. Oh my. I rest my case. He would never do that unless he was deeply in love. He made the bed too. Well, what? Cheryl, you are so lucky to be married to such a spiritual hunk of a man. Wow. Did you win the spiritual lottery or what? See, everything depends on your mental picture of God. Everything. It's the most important fact in your existence. What is your mental picture of God? Which is not to say what's your theology. I'm sure, given your pastor, you've got all great theology. And by the way, let me say this, that one of the things that I find so refreshing here and encouraging and I love about this is that I mean, you're kind of an odd church. Uh, you know that, don't you? Uh, they always say the church takes on the character of the pastor, so that's not very surprising, is it? But I, so rarely do you have spiritual fire and thinking going hand in hand. The, 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 I think the, the most underperformed, I don't want to say performed, the, the command in the Bible that is most ignored by Christians is that we're to worship God with all of our heart, all of our, our body, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And you know what? The mind is an organism that's designed to think. So thinking is a form of worship. Or it can be a form of worship if, if your thinking is centered on God and you're, you're figuring stuff out and you're wrestling with stuff. 
And I love the fact that you can worship God in your spirit and you can worship God with your mind. And, and it, it's so rare to find both. You got a thinking pastor here. That's a real plus. And appreciate that. That's rare. That's really rare. So your mental picture of God is all important. Uh, your mental picture of God, it determines your relationship with God. All of your emotions are, are, are based on the representations you have in your head. And so the beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. If I meet a person who's not on fire for God, and I'll, I, I guarantee you, I'll show you a person who's got a boring conception of God or maybe an ugly conception of God. They don't maybe know it. If you ask them, do you think God is love? They'll say, oh, yeah, God is love. God is grace. God is whatever. But what's actually going on in their head isn't beautiful. And so it doesn't compel them. There's no senecho in them because their, their picture of God isn't senecho. It's just not, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's boring. The beauty of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. And the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your conception of God. Because we're always transformed in the image of the God that we worship. Show me a person who's living an ugly life, and I'll show you a person who's got an ugly conception of God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that, that it's as we with unveiled faces behold the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ, that we're transformed from one degree of glory to the other. The more beautiful your conception of God and the more time you spend gazing on that and enjoying that and letting him love on you and, and just wash you in his love and wash you in his grace, and the more you'll be transformed into his likeness. And that's the goal of the whole thing. You know, you're, you're already, you're already a saint. You're already holy. You're blameless. You're spotless because you're in Christ Jesus. All of life is just a matter of getting our, our experience to line up with that. And, and we're, we're becoming who we actually are because we're in, we're in Christ Jesus. But that's only going to happen if you're seeing accurately, if you know who the true God is, and you're rooting out all the lies that you might have in your life. The beauty of, in fact, they've now found neurologically that this is, here's a great book for the you geeks who like to read a lot. Um, it's called The God-Shaped Brain uh, by, I think the guy's name is Jennings. And it's a, he pulls together all this research that shows that when people have a fear-based conception of God, so what motivates them is not being compelled by the love of Christ. What motivates them is, I need to do it, I got to do it, I better do it, I'm in trouble if I don't do it, God's going to be mad at me, whatever, which is, I think, how, the motivation that many Christians have. Um, but when you have that, see what, it, it actually damages your brain. Literally, the more fearful your conception of God, the more it damages your brain. Because your amygdala, which is your, uh, your fight or flight reflex, um, it, it's overactive. It, it, you're being motivated by amygdala stuff. And your amygdala, what happens is when you uh, confront something scary, it sends this chemical cocktail through your system that gets your heart pounding and gets you sweating because your body says, prepare to either fight or flight, either fight or run. And it, it, that's a, a, a great gift when you come upon a poisonous snake and you confront a bear or whatever, but it's supposed to be used in very limited doses. It's for exceptional circumstances. But when you live in fear and anxiety and worrying about what God thinks about you and your identity and you're not sure about that stuff and, 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 and you, you do what you do because there's just this hammer above your head that's going to come down on you if you don't do it or you're going to be rejected by, have disapproval from the God's people or the pastor or whatever. If that's your motivation, it damages your brain. Too much of that chemical cocktail damages your prefrontal lobe cortex, which is the part of your brain that does all your reasoning, all your abstract thinking is done there. So you can't think straight if you've got too much amygdala going on, and you're going to have too much amygdala going on if you have a, a scary conception of God. Whereas people who've got a love-based 
uh, conception of God. Whether you're a Christian or not, this applies all over the place. But if your conception of God is loving, uh, your amygdala's in proper order and your prefrontal cortex works good. And, and so it, unless you want to believe that God hardwired us to be damaged, brain damaged in the process of knowing him accurately, uh, this is a great argument for that God is love. Uh, God is love. He created us so that our brains are healthy when we know him, and they get unhealthy when we don't know him, when we buy lies about him. The conception of God makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so I was saved in this uh, holiness Pentecostal church in 1974, June 29th, 1974. I had a great encounter with God, and it was life-changing. Um, but I had been, you know, my three years leading up to that, uh, my parents had divorced. I was living with my dad, and my dad traveled two weeks at a time, came back every other weekend. So I was pretty much raising myself from the age of 12 on, which is not a good thing, especially when you have ADHD and tend to uh, get in trouble. So I had three years there of, of just drug, sex, and rock and roll. Um, and, and all the kids, my peers thought I, I had, had a cake life because I was a drummer in a rock band. I was playing in bars when I was 15. Uh, I looked older than I was and they could sneak me in. And, and, and so I, everyone else thought, oh, man, what a good life he's got playing drums in a band and da-da-da. But I was empty. I just felt so empty and meaningless and everything was pointless and I was feeling disgusted with everything. And I started dating this girl who brought me to church um, she was a backslidden Christian. She, if she was on fire for God, she never would have dated me. But uh, we, we started going out, and, and, and she told me why she invited me. It was because it was she wanted to win a blow dryer in this church. They, they, they gave out a blow dryer to whoever brought the most visitors in a month. <laughs> I was saved by a blow dryer. <laughs> hey, God will use anything. He'll use anything. <laughs> He'll stoop as low as he needs to. So if a blow dryer does the trick... And to her surprise, I, I came and, and, and uh, there's something about it that I, I, there's, I was hungry for whatever these people had. And six weeks later, I, I kept on going back to church and gave my life to Christ. Now, here's the thing is that it, 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 this church was, had more rules than you can imagine. It was a holiness Pentecostal church. And, uh, but the only thing you could do that wasn't a sin was eat. Uh, and so... <laughs> We really, you could, we, we didn't go to baseball games or bowling alleys. You can't go to bowling alleys. I remember hearing a sermon. If you're in a bowling alley when the Lord returns, you won't be raptured. And, and it's like, God, God really hates bowling. Wow. But see, people smoke there and they drink there, and, and, and we're not supposed to be around that stuff. You don't want to get defiled by hanging out with sinners. Too bad no, Jesus didn't get that memo. It seems like he, he, he never got that. So... I could give up all the stuff I was doing. I, I, I quit my band. I quit the drugs, uh, alcohol. I, I, I was able to give up all that. Except one thing, and that was a pornography problem. Uh, my dad, nowadays, unfortunately, every kid has access to this on the internet. But back in 74, it was rare to have free access at the age of 12 to a stash of pornography. But my dad had this giant stash of pornography. And, and my dad was really ethical and moral when it came to social justice. I grew up hearing my dad just, just hollering at racists and uh, oh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, he was really big on social justice, but he had the morality of an amoeba when it, comes, it came to sexuality. 
He, he just thought it's natural for young men to be viewing pornography and to be sexually active. He gave me, for my 14th birthday, a box of condoms. <laughs> That's my dad. And just always hammered home, never get a girl pregnant. You can do whatever you want, but don't get pregnant. Because he got a girl pregnant and then ended up having to drop out of college to marry her. And he was going to be a doctor, but he ended up being a tire salesman all of his life. because uh, of this. So he drove it into me, never get a girl pregnant until you're married. Um, but yeah, he thought that was just natural. So I had, from 12 to the age of 16, a steady diet of pornography. I'm alone at the house. He's got the stash here. He doesn't care. And, and I'm still living in that house when I get saved. And I'm living alone, and the stash is right there. And I'm 16, which means I'm a walking hormone. And, and in this church, in this church, you're only as saved as your last sinless moment. Some churches teach eternal security. This church taught eternal insecurity. It's like, because every sin, it breaks off the salvation relationship, so you got to get resaved. So I would get saved on Sunday nights again. And I could stay saved sometimes for a day or two. One time I made it three days. But invariably, I'd fall. And then I do this thing where you think, well, since I'm already on the outs, I've lost my salvation. Heck, I might as well just enjoy it, you know? So you go on a sin binge. Yeah, until Sunday, exactly. I go on a sin binge. Um, and then come back on Sunday night. And I'd always come back, and, and Sunday night was our, our uh, you know, evangelistic service. Although it was only Christians getting resaved, figure that out. So I, but I always go, and I was genuinely sorry for it. Because I, 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 I genuinely believed this stuff was true, and I wanted to live the life, but I just couldn't break that addiction. It just wouldn't go. And after about a year and a half of this, I finally decided to give up. I, I, it's like, I can't do this. I, I felt like a yo-yo on God's finger. You know, you, you, Greg saved. He's unsaved. Saved. Unsaved. Apply the blood. Revoke the blood. Apply the blood. Sometimes I get saved and unsaved a couple times a day. <laughs> it's like... So I'm tired of this. It's making me dizzy. It's got to be making God dizzy. And so there's this one Sunday night service where, where, where I walked out of there, and, and I, I, this time I didn't go forward to get resaved. I, I walked out, and I, I thought, I'm never going to go back. And, I'm ta- you know, and these folks would talk about God being love, but the conception of God was so unloving. You know, Imagine a parent who rejects your kid because you screw up once. And then you, the kid has to do something to become a, a son or a daughter again. That, that's not a very loving parent. It's all so conditional. It, it was so conditional. And see, I was an atheist before I got saved, so I didn't have a conception of God. But the one I had before that, I was raised in a Catholic school, and it was an ugly conception of God. Uh, man, I remember in second grade, the priest came into our, our classroom and taught us about hell. And it was lured, and it was terrifying, and I had nightmares uh, for the next year about being thrown into this uh, volcano with lava, and there's people screaming in this lava, and the devil's kind of like teasing me, trying to push me in. I had the same nightmare uh, on and off for, for, the, for the next year. And so my conception of God just wasn't beautiful at all. He was an authority that I needed to somehow please if I don't want to suffer forever. And that kind of went with my, my view of authority in general, I, I was a hyperactive kid. They didn't have the diagnosis of ADHD back then. I've since gotten that diagnosis. But, but uh, they just called you a demon child. <laughs> and the nuns would beat the crap out of you, man. They, going to, they thought Catholic school would straighten me up. And all they did is screwed up my neck because the nuns were hitting me on the head with a Bible. 
I'm serious. I, to this day, have neck problems. So I, I always, I, I never was good at pleasing authorities. The only thing I was ever good at is ticking them off, which got me points with my peers. So I was always the class clown, and I always, you know, go be the craziest. I actually would get jealous if somebody did something that was outlandish. I had to do something more outlandish because I'm the one who was supposed to be the bad kid in the class. And that's that my identity. So I, I, I'm never good at impressing authorities. They never like me. And God is simply the supreme authority. And my getting saved was like my last attempt to try to please the ultimate authority. And I found out that I just can't do it. I'm not, I, I just don't have it in me. I wish I did. I wish I could. But I can't. And so I walk out of this church service. And I was with a friend of mine who had a similar problem. Um, not as severe as mine. But he also struggled with, with pornography. And I tried to talk to my pastor about it one time. But see, this is a church where the girls had to wear dresses that cover the knees and sleeves had to cover the elbows. Uh, elbows and knees aren't really my issue. <laughs> I, I'm kind of in a different camp. And it seems like a church that is, deals in reality, so I can say this. So I met with a pastor, and I wanted to try to talk about, like, is there any help for me uh, to overcome this problem? But I thought I'd start out kind of easy. So I asked, does the Bible say anything about masturbation? And that pastor, I swear he got a bruise on the bottom of his chin. His jaw dropped so fast. He couldn't say the word. So this isn't going very well. It's like, uh, it's, there's not going to be much help there. So I, I, I said to Tom, the only other guy who knew about this issue, I, I said, I, I, I'm, I, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, I can't live the life, as you used to say it. And, and uh, God's tired of me being in and out, and I'm tired of being in and out. And, uh, you know, I was a happy atheist, relatively happy. At least I was a party animal. I, I'll just go back to that since I'm going to hell anyways. And I don't know if you can enter, if, if any of you have ever had this thought where you feel like you're going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. That is the darkest place you can be. I am doomed. And, and I, I'm just lost. I, I, there was this heaviness on me that was just... Terrible. But then something happened where I felt this rage well up inside of me. Absolute fiery rage. And looking back on it, I can see that it was my frustrations with authorities all my life. And I just erupted. I barfed. I started in that. We were in this church parking lot. By this time, everyone had left. We were standing under this one, the one light in the middle of the parking lot. And, and he was parked, Tom's car was parked right, or truck was parked right there. And we were having this dialogue, and I just began to scream at God. You're enjoying this, aren't you? You're the one who created me with all these hormones I can't control. And you put me in a home where I had a stepmother who was abusive, and she finally leaves, thank God. But now I'm in this house with a dad who's got this pornography. You set me up. The cards were stacked against me. I didn't stand a chance on this. You must enjoy sending me to hell because that's what's going to happen here. I just, I started to swear and I, it was rancid. My, my, my friend, Tom, he, he took a couple steps backward. <laughs> like, okay. Because <laughs> I think he's, he's waiting for the zap to happen, you know. <laughs> but what have I got to lose? I, I, and looking back on it, it was vile, it was ugly, it was sin. But I think that was the first honest prayer I've ever prayed in my life. It was the first honest prayer. Uh, I, I, and I didn't get zapped. I didn't, but I was honest. Looking back at it, I'd always, you know, like, 
it was always that religious thing. You, you got to perform. I gotta, I, here's the words I'm supposed to say. Here's what I'm supposed to do. Here's what I'm supposed to look. And, and, and so you try to put on that. But when, when, when you've lost it all, well, now, now you can get honest. And I, I just was honest with God. And then at one point, Tom said to me, um, Greg, we've got to be missing something. How come other people can live the life, but we can't? Uh, and I, 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 I railed on the church. I, was, I included them. You put me in this church with all these people. All they do is eat, and, 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 and they're self-righteous and, and all of that. And so I, I said, well, if we're missing something, Tom, what is it? And I had my King James Bible right there. And, and I took this Bible, and in my anger, I threw it at his truck. I said, if we're missing something, where is it? Because I've read this whole blankety-blank book, and it hasn't worked for me. And I landed on the, on, on the front of his truck, on the, uh, the what's that called, the front of a truck? Hood! Hood. <laughs> Cars aren't my gig either. Uh, what's that thing that makes, the engine, that makes the car run? Oh, it's an engine. If it's got an engine and a, and a steering wheel, it's good enough for me. I, I, I don't even know the make of my car. Anyways, um, I think it's an Accord. No, it's something else. Anyways, so I told you I have ADHD, uh, so you got to expect these little detours. I threw it on the hood of the car, and it flops open. And so I go over to this Bible, and I start reading it sarcastically. And it happened to open up to Romans 8. And I start reading... There's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that what we're missing? There's no, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. What does that even mean? And I had read that passage before. But now it's starting to become fire. And I kept on reading. Uh, and if God be for you, who can be against you? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he's the highest authority in the land. If God says you're righteous, you're righteous. And, and I, I read it again and again and again. And that weight of feeling doomed, helplessly doomed, begins to lift off of me. And this joy begins to come on me. This fire begins to come on me. And it's like, it's like God was saying, thank you, Greg. You finally got honest with me. Now I can get honest with you. You, you, you'll never get revelations of truth unless you're honest with God. It, it, you have to have an honest pathway, pathway to see reality. And I got honest with God. I'd lost it all. I was hopeless. That's the that's exact right position to be in if you want to get a revelation from God. Confess your helplessness and hopelessness. And God was saying, thank you for getting honest with me. Now I can finally get honest with you. And what he's saying to me is you don't have a clue who I am. Because you got all this religion in your head. Through his word, he begins to reveal who I am. And my mental picture of God began to change. And it was, it was just cataclysmic at the time. I mean, it was such a reframe. Looking back on it, I was only getting a little glimpse of what I know now. <laughs> but I did get a glimpse. And it changed everything. For the first time in my life, I began to sense a sunecho. I began to feel a compulsion. I, I, I began to actually want to live for God. That was a new thing. Before, I had to live for God. I was supposed to live for God because I didn't want to go to hell. Now, I start to see the beauty of God, a God who loves me for free, a God who's I'm not a yo-yo on his hand. I'm his, I'm his, I'm his, I'm his son, and, and, and he loves me as I am and, and embraces me as I am, and that was a completely new phenomenon for me. And that doom was replaced by this joy. I, in the parking lot, 
Tom and I both began to laugh and cry and dance. And, and we had ourselves a little revival. It, was, it just transformed everything. And then when I got a truer picture of God, and I began to feel that snecho, that, that compulsion to live for him. I, want, I love this God. I, I, I want this. And that began to change my conception of me. I am a king's kid. I'm a king's kid. I'm a child of God. And I've got, I've got his righteousness running through my veins. I, 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 I have this eternal inheritance coming my way because I'm an heir of his. And, and I'm part of his family. I belong to God's whole household. And he loves me as I am. And that got me to begin to see that I'm better than this stuff. Uh, this, is, this is juvenile dumb stuff. Rabbits do this. You know, cows do this. Pigs do this. Is, is this the best that I, that I can hope for myself? No, I'm better than this stuff. And it, this is beneath me. And, and, and so now I had a new motivation where I, I stopped representing that in my head as a positive thing that I'm attracted to and started seeing it for the sin that it is. I actually got kind of a picture of a, a pornography photo, but superimposed on it was this manure and, and fungus and pus and maggots and and it and it's it's not a turn on <laughs> it's not a turn on um and for those of you who maybe struggle with pornography here's a nice tip it all has it all has to do with what you do in your head prior to looking at it you're either talking yourself into it or you're going to talk yourself out of it and so if you represent it as a positive thing well you're going to be attracted to that you're biologically wired to be attracted to that but it's not a positive thing represent see it the way god sees it this destroys human beings this is, this is manure. This is disgusting. This is repulsive. Uh, this is soul-killing. And if you, if you represent it like that, well, now it doesn't have the, that, that pull on you. Uh, it, but that's the choice you have to make. Uh, by the time you're looking at it, well, you've already given into that. You've talked yourself into it. Freedom isn't being able to say no to what you want to do. Freedom is no longer wanting it. Right. Amen? Yeah. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So... Your picture, my picture of God changed my picture of me and changed the, my picture of pornography and sin in general. And praise God, I've been sinless ever since. Hallelujah. <laughs> I won't go that far. But I will tell you this. The chains were broken. The chains were broken. And, and, and with that came some wisdom. Um, for example, uh, it never occurred to me before to go to my dad and say, Dad, get rid of your pornography. <laughs> And I think I'd never thought of that because part of me still wanted it to be around. In case I get unsaved, I want to go on a sin binge. Uh, now that I wanted to live for God, and, and, and now that I saw it for what it is, it just occurred to me, I, I know my dad wants me to live there um, because he wants me to go to the University of Minnesota, and I can't afford to do that if I'm living in my own apartment. So he wants me to be there, so why not just leverage that? And I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, you got to get rid of that smut. I, I just... Uh, when you're away, I just look at it, and I don't want to look at it anymore. Get rid of it. And he's like, well, that's unnatural. I mean, of course you want to look at it. That, that's what, it's like, Dad, you don't understand. I tried to share Christ with him, but he wouldn't have nothing to do with it. And so he, he, got, he, he took it out. Um, problem solved. But it didn't occur to me till, till I had gotten that, that new picture of God, a new picture of myself, a new picture of sin. And with that comes wisdom. When you adjust your picture of God, when you get it accurate, when you, you conceive of God as being beautiful, it changes absolutely everything. And see, what shame couldn't do, what the fear of hell couldn't do, the love of God yeah. could do. Amen? Amen. I, 
I had tons of shame and tons. I, I, I remember one time walking up to a young girl's apartment in one of these sin binges I was on, and I was saying to myself, I'm going to go to hell for this. And I did it anyways. Fear, fear can maybe adjust a few little behaviors, but it can't change who you are. And shame can maybe manipulate a few behaviors, but it can't change who you are. Anxiety and performance, those things can adjust the surface, but it doesn't get to the core of who you are. The one thing that will get to the core of who you are and change who you are and change your wants and change your desires and change your behaviors and change your attitudes is the love of Jesus Christ that you're given for free. No ifs, ands, or buts. It changes everything. So I ask you, what is your picture of God? What, what is, not what is your theology. I'm sure you got great theology. But what, is it, what actually happens in your brain when you think of God? And the most foundational aspect of discipleship, I think, where I say we want to take the world back for God, but we first got to take the three and a half pounds between our ears back for God. And, and, and the first step of that is to make sure you've got an accurate picture of God. And by accurate, I mean Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The one who became a human being for our sake when we wanted nothing to do with him and then dove into our sin and dove into our curse. He dove into our hell. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you, and that's the kind of God he is. And now, if, if, you, if, if, if you've had one of these, as we were referring to in the conference, you have a, a love but God, which means they say, yes, God is loving, but he's also holy. As though there's a tension there or a competition there. Yeah, God, God is love, but he's also just. God is love, but he's also wrathful. If God is love, then every other attribute of God is just a different angle on love. There can't be any competition there. So what I like to say at Woodland Hills is, God doesn't have a but. There's no but. God is love. Full stop. Full stop. If you have a love but God, then when you start to envision the true God and start to conceive of God as, as with his unsurpassable love, as revealed by the unsurpassable distance that he crossed to save us, when you start to do that, part of your brain will say, oh, this is, is, this is too good to be true. You know what I'm saying? This is too good. I, I must be talking myself. I must be faking it. I just want this to be true. And, and, and your brain will sabotage this, your, your mental conception of God. Uh, or at least you better play it safe because it might turn out to be a God of wrath. And, and so I, I, that will still be some of my motivation for doing what I do. Yes, love, but we don't know. The but will always compromise the beauty of your conception of God, which compromises the beauty of your relationship with God, which will compromise the beauty of your life that you live for God. Uh, God there is no but with God. Think about it like this. If you're conceived, if, if, when, you're, when you're fellowshipping with God and you're imagining God, if it feels too good to be true, just let that be a post-it note to remind you that you're going in the right direction. All right? You're going, because the truth is you can't begin to imagine the true beauty of God. It's unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. It's beyond anything we can imagine. So if it feels too good to be true, well, at least you're heading in the right direction. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Amen? In him is light and there is no darkness. All right, let's go to 16 and 17. And here's where it gets really interesting. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. In the late 4th century, in the early 5th century, there's a theologian, you probably have heard of him, St. Augustine. I just call him Augustine because I don't consider him a saint. 
And he said some good things. He, he, I've read most of his stuff, and he said some good things, but he said a lot of terrible things. Uh, he was the theologian that transformed the Christian faith into a very dark thing. Uh, he had a, what I consider to be an ugly view of God, and uh, an ugly view of the gospel, and an ugly view of humanity. And in his view, God uh, is a control freak. God predestines everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything is predestined, including who's going to go to hell. And, and, and it's only the elect are saved. God picks and chooses who's going to go, go to heaven before he even creates the world. And in, in this view, humanity is, is, is he, he uses this Latin phrase, mass perditionis. It's a mass of perdition. We're a damnable species. And, and the only exceptions to that are those whom God elects. But everyone else is a, is a, is a child of the devil. You're, 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 you're bound to hell because you're a creature of hell. You're fit for hell. A dark view of humanity. And, and, and in this view, the cross, the only thing the cross does, it doesn't change anything for the vast majority of people. Augustine thought that, that the percentage of people that are actually elect is very small compared to the, the percentage that are damned. And you ask, well, why would God damn the majority of human beings to hell before they're ever born? That's a very good question. But the only answer they give is for his glory. And how having people suffer eternally, which is what his view of hell was, uh, how that glorifies God is quite beyond me. It's like, look what I can do if I want. And it's like, wow, that's impressive, God. It's like, I could look at my finger, but you wouldn't praise me for it. Of course, God could do that. But what glorifies God about that? He introduced this darkness here. And yet they called it good news. Hey, here's the good news. You might be one of God's elect, everyone else is going to hell. Here's the good news. You're all a bunch of damnable creatures unless God has, 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 has elected you. And so the cross makes a difference. It's only the means of election for a relatively few number of people uh, in, in, in the human race. Paul here, I think, does the opposite of that. Um, it, 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 he, he completely, well, he... It, Complete turns that on its head. Um, okay, so look, he says, so we no longer regard, since one died for all, all have died. So in some sense, everybody died. And then he says, so therefore, we're not going to regard anyone from a human point of view. Now, this human point of view, the word is sarx, it means flesh. And that's Paul's concept for simply the false way of looking at the world. It's, it's looking at the world as though what is true about God and true about Jesus, true about salvation, true about spiritual things, wasn't true. It's looking at the world as though what you see is all there is and judging the world on the basis of what you see, as if, as if that's a whole story. Paul says we no longer regard anyone from that natural point of view, from that flesh point of view, that, that strictly human point of view, where what you see is all there is. We once regarded Christ that way, he says, but we do so no longer. When you look at Christ from a human point of view, all you see is a guilty, crucified criminal. You don't see the full revelation of God there, because that takes faith. So, so it's a faithless way of looking at the world. Paul says we're not going to regard anyone from that natural point of view. Rather, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Now, usually people assume that that means, oh, if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. And that's true. That's true. But you're a new creation because there is a new creation and you're part of the creation. He's not talking about the individual there. He's talking about how we look at people, how, how, how we view the world. And he says, if, you, if you're in Christ, and in the Greek it has this connotation of behold or look. 
If you're in Christ, look out. There's a new creation. There's a brand new creation. And everything that is old has passed away, and everything has become new. Now, we don't yet see the fullness of that. Um, it, it's kind of like this. You know, when, when you come into Christ, you, 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 there's a new reality there. You are holy, blameless, spotless, all that. But as I said earlier, the rest of our life is catching up to that, becoming who we are. Something like that, that is true for the whole creation. Uh, it, it's, it, it's already changed, uh, and now it's in the process of, of, of getting appearances to line up with reality. And that will be complete when, when Christ returns. But it's true already. There is a new reality. Everything has changed. Everything is new. And everything old is passed away for everyone. Yeah. Follow this. For everyone, the old is passed away. It's, it, Augustine has a stingy God who just gives little droplets of grace to certain people and love certain people. But the God that Paul is talking about here is an extravagant God, a God who pours himself out fully and completely. He just pours out grace on everyone and everything, so everything has changed. The cross didn't just change things for a few people who get to go to heaven. It changed everything. It's a, a, a new reality is here. And so we're to look at the world in terms of this new creation. Now, unless you think I'm, I'm toying with universalism here, I'm not. I'll explain that in a second. But I want us to first grasp the generosity of God, the bigness of God. And Paul has some statements like this that sound universalistic, uh, but I'll explain them here in a second. Can you put up uh, Romans 5? Listen to this. Is Romans 5 there? Yeah. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, talking about Adam, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many, the multitude, will be made righteous. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, that, that for since death came through a human being, Adam, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. All right. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that, that those passages imply universalism, though I hope they do. I mean, if love hopes all things, I, I would love, who could not hope that everyone will eventually be saved? I, 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 hope, I hope I'm wrong and that, that, that God, if, if there's a way for God to like hardwire it into people and angels that we have a finite capacity to be stupid, uh, then, then, then maybe if he could hardwire it, that we'll eventually get it, well then that's what he would do. But see, my conviction is that love has to be chosen. It's not something that God can't force you into his kingdom. Salvation is the relationship, right? Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The relationship is salvation, so, and that's to be chosen. So there can't be a point where God says, okay, now everyone's going to get saved. No, there has to be a relationship there. And we have all these warnings in Scripture, uh, there, is, there is a way of living uh, that, that, that leads to death. Uh, the wages of sin is death, and there's all these warnings, and, and I feel compelled to, to preach those warnings as part of the gospel, uh, that, that there are dire consequences for this. But what I think is going on in these passages, folks, is I see this as God is, it's revealing God's perspective on the human race. One died for all, therefore all died. The old has, has passed away. Behold, all things are new. Uh, God's got a bear hug around every, all of humanity, yes. all inclusive. Uh, he's got this heart that wants every person in. And in fact, in the cross, 
God now has changed the default setting. It's not like you're going to hell unless you do this. It's rather I am, God's claiming every human being because God loves every human being. God's saying to every human being, you are mine. Uh, you are now in. Because what the cross did is everything that stood between us and God and even between us and one another, everything that obstructed that has been done away with. Praise God. He, he, he got rid of all the issues that could possibly separate us from him. And, and it's the, so the reality here has, has all changed. Uh, that's why you know, I love what Paul says in Colossians 2 when he says that when Jesus was nailed on the cross, um, everything that was held against us, everything the accuser had on us, uh, it was nailed to, to the cross as well. It was destroyed on Calvary, praise God, which is why he then goes on to say, uh, therefore, uh, he's made a laughingstock out of the principalities and powers. Uh, it's a laughingstock because they're the ones who orchestrated the crucifixion, and the crucifixion is what unemployed them because now they have no more ammo on us. They've got, he's, Satan's got nothing on you if you know who you are in Christ. He's the accuser. He's the accuser. God's never been the accuser. It's always been him. He's the legalist. He's the one with the laws and the rules and, and the shoulds and the gotta do's and the threats and all that stuff. And Jesus on the cross blew apart all of that. It's done away with. And now just the true God in his love is embracing humanity, praise God. It's been done away with. So I, if someone's lost, it's not because of the sin in their life. It's their lack of Christ. The, the sin issue's been taken care of. It's like, like we had a debt. Imagine like we, we, we owed a debt. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. We had this debt, and to cancel the debt, what, 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 what the cross did was not just cancel the debt. The cross blew apart the entire accusatory economy. <laughs> yeah? it's, like, it's like if, if, if Carl here owes me $100, and the solution to that is I become the secretary of economy or whatever it is, and I just declare money has no value any longer. Uh, well, he's, he's, he no longer has the debt, because... Money is a non-issue. That's what Jesus does on the cross. Everything that could separate us, everything that enemy had on us is, is destroyed. And now God's got a bear hug around everybody. But love has to be chosen. And forgiveness, and see, that's why Paul says that God's no longer holding people's sin against them. Why? Because that whole economy has been destroyed. He's not holding sin against people. Um, so Jesus' prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them, was answered. You're forgiven. But forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. If, if, if we, you've done something that has separated us, uh, I can forgive you. That's just about releasing the debt. And God has done that. He's destroyed the whole debt economy. But reconciliation takes two, right? You have to accept this. You have to turn from whatever it was that was separating you from the, the other person. And, and you, you have to accept their forgiveness and now be in a restored relationship. And so also... Uh, people need to accept this. The reality is that they're in. God, God's got a bear hug around them. That's the reality. Yeah. But you can choose to live contrary to reality if you choose. Right. In fact, I would define all sin as this. Sin is create, trying to create your own reality as opposed to conforming to God's reality, which is the real reality. Right. Sin is all about living or behaving or thinking or having attitudes as if it was not true that God is Lord and all of Jesus Christ is Lord, as though that none of that was true. We create our own alternate reality, and we go this way. But as we all know from experience, maybe, when you choose to act contrary to reality, which you're free to do, it has negative consequences. You can jump out of an airplane without a parachute if you want, but good luck when you meet the ground. 
reality is reality. And so when we arrogantly think that we get to define what is real, we are going to run into walls. We're going to fall out of planes. We're going to do all, we harm ourselves. And that is, that is its punishment. And so people can opt out of this if they want. Say, no, I want to be Lord of my own life. I want to do my own thing. But the reality, that doesn't change the reality. From God's perspective, he says, he's, he's saying, I claim all in. His heart will grieve if you say, I want to get out. You're free to do that because love's got to be chosen. But oh, let's marvel at the generosity and the extravagance of a God who does this on the cross, pours out his love without any condition, any qualification, and claims everybody as their own. So we are to look at the world this way. This is what Paul's getting at. See people in terms of the new creation that they are. Um, instead of this, you're, you're, you're a miserable sinner and God's going to send you to hell unless you agree with me. No, look at people in light of, always wear the lens of the cross. That person over there, whatever you see about them, whatever they're doing, however disgusting you think it is, forget all that. You look, that's a natural point of view. Now, don't look at the surface. You look at that person and you say, there's a person who's made in the image of God, a person that Jesus thought was worth dying for, a person who's got unsurpassable worth, a person whom God has claimed, a person whom God is working with. A precious child of God, they just don't know it yet. Right. They just don't know it yet. Right. And see, that changes everything. Your attitude towards everybody. And I, I look at people with hope. Uh, you know, love hopes all things, believes all things. How can I not hope? And so I kind of look at everyone as a pre-Christian. They're, 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 you know, they don't know it yet, but, but man, God's got a claim on them. And I don't know how it all works out, you know, in, in the eschaton. And, but but I, I'll just trust God for that. But I look at them... In terms of God's, God's character, not in terms of what you see uh, on the surface. Uh, and and man, it, it changes your attitude towards everyone. I always tell folks at Wilderness Hills Church this, that unless a person has invited you in on their life to offer a commentary, and we all need people involved in our life, who we all have blind spots, and, and who know me well enough to know when it's going well and when it's not going well, and, and can speak into my life. We all need that. But unless a person has done that, then we're allowed one opinion of them, and that is that they were worth Jesus dying for. They were worth Jesus dying for. Amen? And so every person you see, just agree with God. And that's the first act of discipleship. Lord, I agree that I have unsurpassable worth because you paid an unsurpassable price for me, and that person there has unsurpassable worth because you paid an unsurpa unsurpassable price for them. They could not be more precious than they are. That's what it means to have unsurpassable worth. And you look at people with that, and they just bless them. Just bless them, Lord. And whatever you see in their life, whatever shortcomings, whatever faults, whatever you disagree with, just know that that's a mere dust particle compared to the tree trunk coming out of your own eyes. All right? All right? It could keep you from... Because when we judge people, we're not loving them. And we're called to love people, not judge them. God's the judge. We leave it all to him. Our job is to love people in the kingdom, which leads to the third passage here. Uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All of this is from God. Only God could pull that off. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Hallelujah. And entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. He trusts us with this. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
And he goes on the next verse to say, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have the opportunity and the privilege to be the means by which people come to know the truth about who they are and about who God is and about what's going on in creation. The people who aren't believers or aren't disciples in our life, um, they don't know. They don't know the glory of God, the beauty of the truth of what happened on, on, on uh, Calvary. They don't know. Um, but we are given, we're, God entrusts us to be his ambassadors. And it's our privilege to be able to tell people the truth. This is why it's called good news. We get to tell people. And he, he's given to us this message of re reconciliation. What is it? Well, one died for all, therefore all have died. And God's not holding any trespasses against people. We get to tell people this. And, and therefore, we implore you to be reconciled to God. God's done his part. He's, he's forgiven all. It's, it, that's not an issue. Will you just accept this? Will you accept your acceptance? Will you embrace your being embraced? Will you, will you welcome the claim that God has on your life? Um, and we get to tell them, it's good news, that the old has passed away and everything is new. I, I, we have the privilege of saying you know, that the anger issue you got, it, it was killed 2,000 years ago. And that lust problem you've got and that gambling addiction, that was actually crucified 2,000 years ago. That's not who you really are. It's who you would be if it wasn't for Christ, but all things, everything old about you has passed away. That, that depression of yours, that, that's old. And, and, and your apathy towards the poor, that's old. And your self-centeredness and your idolatry, it, that's all old. And your pettiness, that's all old. Uh, who you really are is found in Jesus Christ. That was put away 2,000 years ago. Everything is new. And that's why it's called good news. It really is good. It's the best news in the world. It's the best news in the world. Some of, it seems to me that what a lot of churches do, maybe even most in America, at least evangelical churches, is, is it's not that. Um, a lot of Christians in America, at least, I'm sure, you, you, Canadians have always been a little smarter than Americans. Let's just be honest with that, okay? It's just, and we all know that down there, okay? So it's, but um, I think a lot of churches think it is their job to say God is holding your trespasses against you. Uh, and, and you're in big trouble unless you agree with this. God will love you if you'll accept this. And, and we call that good news. Hey, uh, it's like a track I saw one time. Uh, God, it was the stupidest track in the world. And on the, on the cover, it just said, uh, did you know you are going to hell? And you open it and it says, but God loves you. <laughs> and, and so believe in Jesus and you won't go to hell. What a twisted gospel. It's just, and, and so many churches, they think it's their job to be the moral police of society. We'll tell you what's wrong with you. And, and we're the defenders of righteousness. But it's really interesting because they, they always go after other people's sin, never their own. And the sins they go after tend to be ones that are very infrequently mentioned in the Bible, whereas the sins that we wink at are the ones that are harped on a lot. Like, like, like show hospitality to the stranger, welcome the foreigner, and, and, and uh, don't gossip, and don't slander, and, and don't be involved in idolatry, which is where you use anything in your life to fill a hole that only God can really fill. That's idolatry. We're massively guilty of all that, but we want to crack down on those sinners out there. Because we're the righteous club. We're the holy club. We got it together. Our sins are minor. There's our major. We got little dust particles, but they got logs. Sorry, Jesus says have the opposite attitude. You got the log, they got the dust particle. Or like Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, here's a saying that is worth, worthy of acceptance by all people. That Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 
Of, I'm, now, of course, you can only have one worse sinner, and that'd be Carl. Right? But, but, but see, he, he's not talking about it. He's giving us an attitude that we're supposed to have. I'm the worst of sinners. And if you consider yourself the worst of sinners whom Jesus Christ has saved, you can't possibly look down on anybody. If you're at the bottom, the only place to look is up. So you have respect for everybody. And you have love for everybody. So if we want to crack down on sin, yeah, great, wonderful, we should. But let's start at here. Peter says, judgment begins in the house of God. Don't worry about that world. Paul says, what business do we have judging those outside the church? <laughs> we have no business. Let them go. Our job is to share with them the message of reconciliation. That, that God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself. And that included you. And all that old stuff that you have. And I still have old stuff too. We're all in process here. But it, the reality is it's passed away. We just got to get our brains to line up with that truth. And then our life and our attitudes to line up with that truth. And that's what the church is called to be, is to, to be manifesting the truth of what is in a world that doesn't yet acknowledge it. Just be a light that shines, that knows the true God and reflects the character of, of the one true God. The last thing I'll say is that God has entrusted us with this message, uh, which means that God has faith in us, if I can put it like that. He, he, he's, he's entrusting this. He wants to make his appeal to everybody, but he makes it through us. He makes it through us. Evangelism sometimes turns into this awkward thing where you try to start an artificial conversation to try to artificially introduce Jesus into a conversation. And you're only relating to this person because you don't, don't really care about them. You just feel the need to share the gospel with them because you're supposed to. So often evangelism is like that. It should be the most natural, real thing in the world. You've got good news, the best news in the world. And we always want to share good news with people, don't we? It's like if something's good, it's like, oh, did you see that movie last night? It was really great. We naturally talk about it. But it's important that we do talk about it. It's important that we demonstrate it, but also that we talk about it and are looking for opportunities. Because if God's entrusted us with this message, that means things hang in the balance. Uh, things really count. Uh, there, may be, uh, there will be people who God wants them to know the truth and to be set free, but they won't hear the truth and be set free unless you tell them. Right. Things really hang in the balance here. And that's not, that, 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 that shouldn't be a heavy thing it's really a respect thing that God believes in us. He, he, he entrusts us with this uh, to be his ambassadors. And we only send our best over, well, we try to send our best over to be ambassadors in another country because they represent us. doesn't always all work out so well, but you don't want to send a bozo as an ambassador. It's going to make the whole thing. So also, God's, we're citizens of heaven and we're down here in this foreign land to put on display the beauty of the land that we come from and the beauty of the king of this land and invite others to come into this. And, and uh, uh, it's what gives our life so much significance and importance. It's a privilege. It's also a responsibility. So I want to encourage you. I think this is, should be given for all ambassadors of the kingdom. At least have one person in your life that you're praying for an opening to share the good news. To share the good news. And, and, and be praying for them. Um, and as you pray for them, see what will happen is God will begin to give you his love for that person. And that becomes a senecho, a compulsion, a constraint. Oh, I just want to tell this person. When you love somebody and you've got good news, you don't sit on it. You want to share it somehow. And, 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 and so you be, pray that God gives you that heart, and then God gives you the wisdom of knowing how to begin a relationship with this person. And don't be beginning a relationship just so you can get them to sign on a dotted line. You can smell that a mile away, and people hate it. No, you develop a relationship because this person is worth relating to. Because Jesus died for them, and, and they've got unsurpassable worth. You're really honored to be able to know this person. I don't care 
what facts are true about that person. Maybe by social standards, most people think they're disgusting, but they're a king and a queen when you're not looking at it from a human point of view, but from the perspective of the cross. Amen. Those are kings and queens out there. They just don't know it. They just don't know it. You know, uh, Bruxy last night gave this illustration that was so good. He says, you know, we, when you look at a worm crawling around in the mud, you don't feel sorry for it because that's what worms do. It's natural for a worm. But if a person is wallowing around in the mud acting like, like a worm, that's tragic because they're meant for so much more. We've got worlds populated with people who are kings and queens, and God has claimed them, and Jesus died for them, and there's a new reality about them. But they still live like they're worms because they don't know any different. They think what's true about them was, was what dad said or mom said or dad did or mom did or the guy on the bus did or the car crash message from the car crash did or whatever. They have all these lies. And if we have the heart of God, man, you can just envision how beautiful it will be when they believe and they come to the knowledge of the truth and they're set free. Get a vision of that. that that's faith. Have faith for that. And then just ask God to use you in that way. So close your eyes for a moment here, if you would. Um, I want to ask just two questions. One is, what really is your picture of God? I've been on this journey for, gosh, I'm old, 42 years. 44 years. <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still catching bugs. You know, I, I, it's like, oh, that, that's, that's an untrue thought. Uh, the process of cleansing the brain is a long one. So ask the Spirit to show you, is there any part of your brain that doesn't fully, fully trust that God is altogether light and in him there is no darkness? Altogether love. And in him there is no hatred, no vengeance, no, no get-evenism. God is altogether beautiful. There is no ugliness. And when you find that, that suspicion or that picture, just gently set it aside. And the Bible says to bring every thought captive to Christ. So bring every conception of God captive to Christ. Focus your eyes on Jesus. And resolve in your heart that you're not going to entertain any conception of God that is not centered on the one who said, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Don't look to the right of Jesus, to the left of Jesus, in front of Jesus, or behind Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who died for all, and therefore all have died. Holy Spirit, cleanse our mind and heart of all lies and of all suspicions that this might be too good to be true, and help us dare to believe that However beautiful we conceive of you, you're infinitely beyond that. And the second question is, ask the Spirit to put on your mind a person in your life that you're, you're to start praying for. And maybe it'll be two or three people, but you're an ambassador. You're an ambassador, and God wants to make his appeal to people to be reconciled, to accept forgiveness and be reconciled. He makes that appeal through you, and he's entrusted you with this. Things hanging in the balance. And so ask the Spirit to give you these people and just start to pray for them. And then receive God's heart for these people. And ask the Spirit to open the doors. Father, thank you for being an extravagant, lavishing, outrageously, scandalously loving God. It's more beautiful than we can possibly begin to even imagine. But thank you for revealing yourself to us on the cross in the life of ministry of Jesus. Thank you, God, for 
changing everything. Thank you, God, that everything old has passed away. Help us to agree with that and to get our thoughts to line up with that. Uh, thank you for making everything new. Help us to get our thoughts to line up with that and get our life to line up with that. And Lord, help us to see every person that we come in contact with as encompassed by your love, as claimed by you, as part of the new creation that you brought about on Calvary when you changed everything. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen, amen. All right, here you go. Thank you. So come on, stand up with me. Gonna gonna give you a blessing. But can I get those who are on altar ministry today? Can you guys come up and get ready to just uh, minister to people? Anybody on altar ministry? Elders, uh, altar ministry people? Just come on up right now. You know, you may be here today, and before you go, you actually would like some further prayer. You'd like somebody to meet with you, pray with you. Maybe there's an issue, a health issue, another issue, a concern, a relation issue, something. God does things at the altar, and things get altered. Things get shifted. You know, what you've heard today is real good news. And if you've never accepted that he accepts you, it doesn't change the fact that he accepts you. He just accepts you. That's reality, is God's done everything necessary for you to be in the family. I would just ask you to say yes to Jesus. Just say yes to Jesus. If you've never done that before, talk to someone before you go. Tell them, hey, you know what? I, I want in on this beautiful community. You're not joining this church. You're joining the family of God. But we would love to help you unpack all that that means. And, uh, you know, being a part of a community is a good thing, too. But we'd love to help you if you've never done that. But if you need prayer for anything, I, people get healed at the altar. They get touched. Lives get transformed. And if you haven't been to the altar lately, it's a good thing to do every once in a while. And you'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Greg. Thank you for his life, his ministry, and we bless him. We bless him from our hearts, and we're just so grateful for him. And Lord, we thank you for his testimony of what you've done in his heart and life. And if you've done it for Greg, you can do it for me. If you did it before, you'll do it again. And so we just embrace you and thank you. And Lord, in this beautiful day, thank you for this beautiful community. We get to work with each other and serve each other and esteem each other better than ourselves. Thank you for it all. And I command your richest blessing on each one as we go enter into you know, our world where you've placed us to reveal your goodness and glory. Holy Spirit, put us on like a garment and demonstrate and testify Jesus everywhere we go. So I bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.